You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. Bible's reading from today is from 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3 from 13 to 17. Um, so verse 12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome. My name is Ralph. I'm one of the pastors here at City, uh, and it is my pleasure to be able to start this new series uh, looking at what it means for us to be a reformed uh, church. So let us bow our heads and let us pray together. We have just sung, where else can we go, Lord? Where else can we go? You, Lord, have the words of eternal life. That is true. Where else can we go except to you alone? And we pray that as we turn to your word today, that we would experience exactly that by the power of your spirit, that here we might find the words of eternal life. Amen. Well, as Matt explained, over the next four weeks, we're going to be doing something a little bit different uh, because we're having a series looking at just one of our church values. Uh, our values at City Church, they're like the DNA of the church. Uh, they're the genetic code that you'll find written into every bit of what the church is. Uh, and taken together, they spell out the word gear. Okay, that's a way to, to easily remember it, gear. So, so the first three of our church values, they're pretty simple. The, the G stands for gospel-driven. The E stands for excellence. We want to do things excellently because we serve a God who has given his very excellent best for us in Jesus Christ. And the A stands for accessible. We want to be as accessible as possible for a diverse group of people. So far, so good, yeah? Pretty straightforward. But our fourth value is a bit more tricky. The, the R stands for reformed. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, let me put it this way. City Church is quite a new church. We were only started eight and a half years ago. And as a new church, we do lots of things differently. We try things that churches have never tried before. But there is one thing 
at City Church, which is definitely not new. What we believe. We believe, as a church, what Christians have believed down through the centuries. And when we say that we are reformed, what we're doing is we're positioning ourselves within a certain historical line of belief. We're saying that we believe the same things as the reformers believed back in the 16th century. That those men and women whose religious revolution turned the world upside down and gave us most of the things that we most value in the Western world today. But it doesn't stop there. We don't just believe the same things as the 16th century reformers. You see, those 16th century reformers, they weren't claiming to have discovered new truth. Rather, they claimed that they had rediscovered old truth, a truth that had been lost when the church in Rome decided to turn from what the Bible taught and to instead trust in the traditions of men. So when we claim to be reformed, we're standing in the tradition of people like John Calvin and John Knox, but it doesn't stop there. It goes all the way back to Augustine in the 5th century, Athanasius in the 4th century, Irenaeus in the 2nd century, and right back to the apostles themselves. That is the claim when we say that we want to be a reformed church. In other words, if you want to understand what this means simply, it means this. You will never hear a new thing taught at City Church. You'll never hear a new thing taught at City Church. Nothing that Matt or I say up here will be novel or original or new. No, what we are seeking to do is take the truth that Christians have taught and believed down through the centuries and apply it to our very different world today. But I guess... We probably want to know, what are the specifics of reform teaching that we're talking about here? Well, over the next four weeks, we're going to focus on four specifics. How God speaks through the Bible. How God saves through sovereign grace. How God transforms through Christians seeking the prosperity of their city. And then how God orders through complementarity. So first up today, how God speaks. And our passage today, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 to 17, tells us this. Let's get our bearings of where we are in, in the Bible. In 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to his young apprentice, Timothy. And chapter 4 of the letter suggests that Paul is facing imminent execution. So so these are very probably Paul's last words to Timothy, which means they're important. Just before the passage we had read, Paul warned Timothy against the danger of false teachers. Verse 2 of chapter 3. Don't be like them, Paul warns, chapter 3, verse 10. Don't be like them. You... You are to be different. 
follow me, Paul says, not them. And that will mean, verse 14, sticking with the word of God. Now, we're going to unpack these verses today by asking two simple questions. This is it. This is really straightforward. Two simple questions. What is the Bible? And what does the Bible do? That's it. What is the Bible? And what does the Bible do? So first up, what is the Bible? Verse 16 tells us, it says that all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, the Greek word used there in the original Theognevmatos literally means God-spirated. God-spirated. Some older translations, like the old King James Version, read, all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. But that doesn't quite do the original justice. You see, it's not that God inspired the writing of the Bible, like I inspired my daughter Sophie and her brilliant artwork for GCSE. That's, that's not quite what's being said here. It's, it's more than that. What Paul is saying here is that the words of the Bible were literally breathed out by God. Just as these words you're hearing hitting your eardrums right now are breathed out by my mouth, so the words of Scripture were breathed out of God. These words we have here in the Bible, in our hands today, they are God's words breathed out of his mouth. Is they were put down on paper, on papyri, in fact, by human authors. And yes, they bear the marks of their human authorship with 40 different writers across three continents, across 1,500 years, writing in three different languages. That's why within this book, we have lots of different grammar and syntax and style and genre. But from beginning to end, all of it is God's own word. But I guess it begs the question, well, well it says the scriptures, but, but what are the scriptures here that Paul is talking about? I think Paul is talking about two different things here. He's first of all talking in verse 14 about what Timothy had learned from Paul himself. You see, Paul had seen the risen Jesus He'd been taught by Jesus one-on-one. And as a result, Paul ended up writing almost half the books we find in our New Testaments today. And Paul is saying here, remember the good news about Jesus that you learned from me, Timothy. That's what he's saying in verse 14. But remember also, verse 14, what you learned from your mum, Eunice, And your grandma Lois, two women were told about in chapter one of the letter. Remember, Timothy, what they taught you when you were a tiny boy. They taught you, verse 15, the Holy Scriptures. That's the Old Testament. That's that's the books from Genesis through to Malachi. So so the Scripture that Paul is talking about in verse 16, that is all God-breathed, that is the Old Testament writings, yes, But it is also the New Testament writings as well. It is all 66 books of the Old and New Testament combined. 
The whole Bible is the very word of God. Now, that has two crucial implications for us today. Two things that lie at the heart of what it means when we say that we are reformed as a church. Firstly, it means that the Bible has authority. The Bible has authority. This was so, so important at the time of the Reformation in the 16th century. You see, for the past 1,000 years, the church in Rome had been amassing power for itself. It, it, it had built up a body of church tradition. They called it the magisterium. And that was authoritative on how Christians were to live in the church. Now, it, it wasn't that the church denied that the Bible was its authority. What the church in Rome did instead was to put the Bible on the same level as its own tradition, its own interpretations of the Bible. So it meant that they had the Bible in one hand and they had the bishop and the pope's interpretation of it on the other. And they said, we hold both as being authoritative. Neither one is sovereign over the other. They're equal. The only problem, of course, is that that made church tradition authoritative. In fact, it made the Pope's interpretation of Scripture authoritative. Why? Well, because if the Bible and someone's interpretation of the Bible are equally authoritative then inevitably the person's interpretation of the Bible will trump the Bible itself. Because the person's interpretation can change while the Bible is fixed, static, complete. Do you see? That's why the Pope in the 16th century was able to develop his despicable practice of indulgences to fund the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. He told naive church members all around Europe that if they gave their money into his building fund, then they can free their loved ones out of the chains of purgatory. It was a devilish thing to teach. But he could say it because he said, what I say is on a level with what the scriptures say. And that sort of false teaching, that adding to the Bible, it is inevitable if we deny the supreme authority of the scriptures. Scripture and scripture alone has authority in the church because scripture and scripture alone is God's word. Well, what does that mean for us today? Well, when you come here on a Sunday, I hope, I hope you keep your Bibles open or your Bible app open on your phones when you come and listen to me preach. I hope you do that. Because my words, they are not God's words. And you need to check everything that I say against what you find here in the Bible. If it doesn't line up, then you do not need to listen. It can go one ear in and another ear out, and that is fine. But if it does line up with what we find here in the Bible, you better listen. 
Because God himself is speaking to you personally here and now. It's why Bible teaching is absolutely central to everything we do at City Church, whether it be here on a Sunday, whether it be a midweek and equip, whether it be on our weekends away or in our elders' meeting, the Bible is always central because you know who leads City Church. It's not me and Matt and Eric. It's not even the other elders. It's not even you yourselves as members who lead City Church. No, the one who leads City Church is God himself as he speaks through his word in the scriptures. This is it. This is why it is taught week in, week out at the church, because this, God speaking through his word, is what leads our church. The Bible is God's word. It is authoritative. And I need to ask you, do you believe that? Do you? Do you live that? Uh, Let me ask you. When was the last time that you did something you really, really didn't want to do simply because the Bible told you to do it. Perhaps it was forgiving someone who'd hurt you really, really badly. Maybe it was attending church on a Sunday when there was a really good 4.30 game on the TV. Maybe it was helping out a church member after you'd had an incredibly rough, hard day at work. When was the last time? And when was the last time that you didn't do something that you really, really wanted to do simply because the Bible said that you must not do it? Maybe it was intentionally pulling away from from a non-Christian colleague who you'd started to feel romantically attracted to. Maybe it was deciding not to watch that Netflix series that everyone else has been watching because you know that watching it is bad for your sexual purity. What is authoritative in your life? Are you your ultimate authority? Or is God the ultimate authority through his word? Now, the second implication of the Bible being God's word, is that the Bible is without error in everything that it affirms to be true. The Bible is absolutely true and trustworthy. That flows out of two facts about the Bible. Fact number one, that the Bible is God's word. We've already seen that. Fact number two is that God does not lie or make mistakes. So Job chapter 37 verse 16 tells us that God is perfect in knowledge. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10 says that God knows the end from the beginning. And John chapter 17, verse 17 tells us that God's word is truth. So we learn from these verses that God knows absolutely everything. God does not lie, which must mean, it must mean that God's word written in the Bible is both true and without error in all that it affirms. That is the reformed view of the scriptures. It's what John Calvin held, what Francis Turretin held, the view of Jonathan Edwards and B.B. Warfield. It's the reformed view. This does not contain any error 
than what it intends to affirm to be true. But we need to be careful here. People are quick to poke fun at what is often called the doctrine of inerrancy. They say, well, you can't really believe that, not in the 21st century. I mean, what about the unscientific parts of the Bible? Like, I've read Psalm 19, and I know in verse 6 of Psalm 19, David, King David, he, um, he talks about the sun making its circuit through the sky. But we all know that's not true. The sun doesn't go round the earth. That's only what foolish people 3,000 years ago believed. We all know that the earth goes round the sun. So that's clearly wrong. There's clearly an error in the Bible. Psalm 19, verse 6. We can say that. But only if you're also willing to say that the BBC News website is factually an error. Every morning when you look up the weather report on it, and it reports the time the sun sets and the sun rises. And we all know that the sun doesn't set or rise, it just is. But of course, both King David 3,000 years ago and the BBC today... They are writing phenomenologically. They are recording in writing what they see, not what scientifically is. Other people don't go for the unscientific parts of the Bible. They instead go straight for the gospel accounts, such as the resurrection accounts. We, we looked at some of those last Sunday, on Easter Sunday. And they point to the different accounts, the four different accounts, and they say, well, well which one is right? Was there one angel at the tomb, like Matthew and Mark say? Or was there two angels, like Luke and John said? They can't both be right. But of course, each of those gospel accounts, they are just different eyewitness accounts of the one same event. Mark and Matthew, they focused on just one of the angels. Luke and John focused on two of the angels. Just as some eyewitnesses to a road traffic accident just speak about the driver of the car that crashed into the other car, whereas others mention the driver, the passenger, and the two kids in the back. They are different eyewitness accounts that are each true of the same event. You see, the Bible is without error. Unlike us, we make errors all the time. The Bible never does. Which means, and this is really, really important for us today, the Bible, rightly understood, that's a really important caveat, we must rightly understand this word, but when we rightly understand it, if it comes into conflict with what people generally believe, the Bible is right. Every single time. No matter how unpopular that makes us today, and boy, we know it makes us unpopular, don't we? On matters of sin and sexuality, on topics of gender and judgment, justice and hell. Those are not comfortable truths to believe today. But that is central to what it means for us to be reformed, to be trusting in God, not in our own judgment or opinion. To be standing in continuity with Christians down through the millennia, not going with the latest fad or claiming that the Bible somehow needs to catch up with where we are today as sophisticated 21st century people. 
We believe that what we have here is the word of God, which means it is the authority over our lives and over our church, and it is always true. But secondly, what does the Bible do? Uh, Nearly 400 years ago, 121 clergymen came together in the Westminster Abbey, And they came together to formulate a document that became known as the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's widely regarded as being the definitive statement of Reformed doctrine. And listen to what that confession said about the Bible. It says this, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or, by good and necessary consequence, may be deduced. From Scripture. So the Bible tells us everything we need to know for salvation and to live in a way that pleases God. God's word is powerful. We know that, don't we? If we've read the Bible, we know that. Think back to Genesis chapter 1. How was the earth, the, the sun, the stars, the moon created? God spoke, and it happened. In the Old Testament, how did God create a people for himself? By his word, God called with a word Abraham out of Ur the Chaldeans. In the New Testament, we see Jesus healing the sick, casting out demons, stilling a raging sea, even raising a little girl from the dead. How does he do it? With an Aramaic word, Talitha kum, little girl, get up. Right here in our hands, we have the most powerful thing in the whole universe. We have the very word of God. And if we're Christians here this afternoon, we've experienced something of that power firsthand. What do I mean? Well, we've experienced this power to save. The Bible doesn't tell us everything we want to know about everything. It will not tell you how many penguins there are in Antarctica. It will not tell you how many cells there are in a human body. But it does tell us everything we need to know about the most important things. It gives us, verse 15, wisdom. Wisdom that enables us to put our faith in Jesus for salvation. Now, notice how that works in verse 15. Our salvation hasn't been won by the Bible. We are not saved, verse 15, in the Bible, are we? No, we are saved in, verse 15, Christ Jesus. You see... The Bible is God the Holy Spirit's chosen means, his tool, his instrument to bring us to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's because every part of the Bible, from beginning to end, holds up Jesus. It floodlights Jesus. Every page from Genesis to Revelation is like a big, gigantic hand pointing out at you and saying, here is Jesus. So when we're in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, and we read of this child of Eve who will crush Satan's head, that's Jesus. 
We go forwards a few pages to Genesis chapter 22. We read of a ram who dies in the place of Abraham's son, Isaac. That's Jesus. Or we go forwards to Exodus chapter 12, and there we find a lamb dying in the place of the firstborn of every Israelite family. That's Jesus. We move on through Exodus, and we get to the tabernacle, the place where God dwells with his people. It's Jesus. We move on and we get to the kings and we find the shepherd boy, the little boy called David, who represents his people, the nation, in fighting against their great enemy and wins. Who's that? It's Jesus. The little shepherd boy becomes a king. He becomes a king who is forsaken. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who's that? It's Jesus. We get to the prophet Isaiah. We read about one to come who will not break the bruised reed, who will not snuff out the smouldering wick. Who's that? It's Jesus. We get to Isaiah chapter 53. We read about a man of sorrows by whose wounds we are healed. Who's that? It's Jesus. We get to Zechariah. We read about a mighty king coming in, not on a war horse, but on a donkey of peace into his city to, to reign. Who's that? Jesus. You see, the whole Bible, all of it from beginning to end, has been given to us to make us wise for salvation, to lead us to Jesus. Have you seen that, my friends? Have you read this book, the Bible? Have you let it draw you into Jesus? Have you found here wisdom in the man who was crucified in your place, taking the punishment that you deserve for your rebellion against God? Have you found truth here? Have you found life here in the one who went into the grave, but the grave could not hold him, and he was resurrected to new life three days later? Will you find salvation here today, my friend? by letting it lead you to putting your trust in Jesus. What does the Bible do? It is the Holy Spirit's tool for bringing you and I to salvation. That's why we preach it every single Sunday here at City Church. That is why every single sermon you will hear at City Church ends up with Jesus and his work, not because we're shoehorning it in, but because every passage speaks about Jesus and his work. Because the Bible has been given to lead us to Jesus and his salvation. Secondly, God uses the Bible to transform us. Again, the, the Bible is an instrument, it's a tool. It is the God, the Holy Spirit, who transforms us from the inside out as Christians. But the way he does that is through the Bible. So do you want to grow as a Christian? Do you really want to grow as a Christian? Well, how often do you read your Bible? How often do you listen to good sermons? How many Bible-soaked Christian books have you read in the last year? Uh, some research was undertaken by the Center for Bible Engagement. They surveyed almost 3,000 Christians asking about their Bible reading habits. 
And the results were astonishing. They found that those who read the Bible four days a week or more, that's just half the days in a week, those who read the Bible four days a week or more were 40% less likely to be bitter in their relationships. 32% less likely to be destructive about themselves or others. 30% less likely to overeat or mishandle food. 60% less likely to feel spiritually stagnated, 59% less likely to look at pornography, 228% more likely to share their faith with others, and 231% more likely to disciple someone else. God the Holy Spirit uses God's word, the Bible, to transform us. Look at verse 16 again. The Bible is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. There are two pairs here, both negative and positive, both dealing with what we believe and what we do. So on the one hand, what we believe, the Bible teaches and corrects us. It deals with what we believe. It deals with doctrine. It teaches us about God, about sin, about salvation and judgment. And the Bible corrects our wrong thinking too. It tells us that we are nowhere near as good as we think we are. And yet far more loved than we ever dared dream. And the Bible transforms our lives as well as our thinking. Verse 16, it it trains us in righteousness and it rebukes our sin. And that can be painful. That can be uncomfortable. But that is how God works. The Reformed tradition has a famous slogan. It's in Latin, and it's this. Semper reformanda. Always reforming. You see, we test everything against Scripture. We test what we believe against Scripture. We test how we do church against Scripture. We test how we gather together against Scripture. We test how we treat people, how we treat the weak, the poor, the vulnerable. We test it against Scripture. We want to be always reforming, always letting God's Word transform our lives, because that is how He works in power, that, according to verse 17, is how he thoroughly equips us for every good work. The Australian preacher David Cook tells a story of a young man called Ross who came to study at the the Bible seminary that David Cook taught at in Sydney. Uh, Now, Ross was of Italian descent. His father uh, moved to to Australia from Italy post-war as an immigrant, uh, and Ross was his parents' fifth child, but the first boy in the family, the eldest son. Uh, and there was a tradition uh, within Italian households that, that when the eldest son, as a baby, reached the age when his fingernails had grown long enough to need to be cut, that the tradition was that the father of the child would take the baby's hands and take a pair of scissors, and he placed the baby's hand on something really valuable. Often it would be a wad of Italian lira, lots of money. And then he would snip each of the child's fingernails. On this occasion, Ross's father took Ross's hand and didn't 
put it on a wadge of notes, but instead on a copy of the Italian Bible. Because his father's number one concern for Ross was not that he would be wealthy or successful, but that he would be godly. Now, when Ross reached the age of 16, he was, he was incredibly good at football. In fact, he was so good at football by the age of 16 that he'd been selected to play for the Australian under-18 football team, which is every Italian father's dream to have their son play national football. Ross was totally engrossed in football. One day when Ross was leaving the house to, to go off to training, his, his father stopped him and said, Ross, have you read your Bible yet today? And Ross looked at his dad in bemusement. Bible? I'm off to go training. I'm, I'm about to play for the Australian national team. No, dad, I haven't read my Bible today. And his father replied, Ross, you cut the Bible out of your life. You cut God out of your life. And Ross couldn't get that sentence out of his mind. A little while later, he got converted, went to Bible college, and is now serving in full-time ministry. You cut the Bible out of your life, you cut God out of your life. That is what we believe as a Reformed church. The Bible is God's word to us today. It is authoritative. It is without error. It is his instrument to save us and his instrument to transform us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, the Bible. Thank you that it is your word to us today. Thank you that it is your authority over our lives. Thank you that it is without error. Lord, thank you that it is what you use to save. We're, we're so blessed to be in a church where we've seen that salvation many, many times over. And it's your word to transform. So Lord, take your word, Holy Spirit, take your word, let it deep down in our hearts and let it be transforming of us now, today, tomorrow, and forevermore.